really get couples to try to think about what a positive birth is for them because it's really individual. You know, you really want to think about how you want to feel during that experience, how you want to feel after that experience. Who do you want to be there with you? What role do you want them to play? Um, you know, usually when women describe their positive birth, it's not at all tied to the mechanics of birth. So they might say something like, oh, you know, I'd really like to have a water birth, but that's not their key. Their, the key sort of descriptors tend to be, you know, I want to feel supported. Um, I want to feel like I have a voice. I want to be involved in my care. You know, I want that informed decision-making process. Like they, they want to really own their birth rather than just, you know, get put on sort of that conveyor belt of care um, that, that the hospital provides. And um, that those tend to be the key descriptors of, of a positive birth. And you can achieve that you know, with a water birth, with an epidural, with a home birth, with a cesarean. Like, it's really not tied to any one type of birth. Welcome to the Pollination Mamas podcast. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land where I live, the Biripai people, and all other First Nations people within Australia. I aim to bring you collaborative conversations, cross-pollinating as we span our wings, connecting the threads of ancestral wisdom in a modern context so that we can live a nurtured life. I believe ancestral wisdom provides a roadmap to a regenerative culture, contributing to thriving communities, healing and health. The gorgeous little song that you heard in the intro and the outro is called The Littlest Birds. It was performed by the Oluca Family Band from the Olive Gap Farm. It was originally performed by the Be Good Tanyas and generously sponsored by the Olive Gap Farm, which is a certified organic family farm specialising in small batch native essential oils and seasonal cut flowers. I highly recommend checking out their tea tree oil online. They are located on Bundjalung country in the northern rivers of New South Wales, Australia. Draw on inspiration from various sustainable farming practices to create a high quality product that's equally nourishing to us and the earth. You can check out links to their website and social media in the show notes. Welcome to another Pollination Mamas podcast. I've got Caitlin Dyer here from Mother Down Under, love that name, um, who lives in Brisbane in Queensland, Australia. For anyone who doesn't really know where that is, that's um, the tropical state. (laughs) It's where all the good fruit grows in Australia on the East Coast. Um, And through her own professional and personal experience, has created a really beautiful, empowering, holistic package supporting mothers and their families from pregnancy through to birth, postpartum and beyond. Caitlin is a hypnobirth instructor, postpartum doula with a background in psychology and nursing and much more. It's quite a 
beautiful long list that I read there. I can tell um, you're quite passionate and have continued expanding your knowledge and training there. So welcome, Caitlin. Thanks for making time for being here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Really excited to, um, yeah, get to hear your story a bit. I've read a little bit about it and I love following your posts and what you share on social media. So, yeah, I guess I would love for you to open up maybe with how you came to this. Your personal experience is really quite interesting and inspiring and um, how that led you to take that beyond just your own experience and being passionate to share that with other mothers and families. Yeah, so I, I first found out I was pregnant like oh, just about exactly 10 years ago. Um, and, it, you know, I, I work as a theatre nurse at one of the, the big hospitals here in Brisbane. And so prior to getting pregnant, my only experience with, with birth was what Hollywood showed me and then what I saw at work, which was cesarean. And I just sort of intuitively knew that there was more to birth than what I had been shown thus far. And I guess when I got pregnant, I just wanted to explore that a little bit more. Like I just wanted to learn more about pregnancy and about birth. And really, I guess, despite doing nursing, like nursing does not cover any aspects of, of maternity care, or like what happens with your body, but that is the way my brain thinks. So I wanted to understand, you know, the physiology of what was going to happen and how I was going to have this baby and, you know, what my options were. So I think, you know, I did what all new moms do is I took to Google um, and somehow Google led me to hypnobirthing. And 10 years ago, it was not at all mainstream. Like I really didn't know what exactly I was signing up for. Um, but just from reading the course description, I was like, I think this is going to give me everything that I want. Um, so went along to the classes and yeah, it, 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 it really did. So I tend to be sort of like type A control freak. Again, the way I prepare for things is by over preparing and, you know, gathering knowledge and writing to do lists. And so I was trying to apply that, that framework to birth. And birth is obviously this uh, experience that you can't fully control and you know you can write birth plans and like lists for your hospital bag and you know you, you can do all of that but then you can still feel really out of control about the actual giving birth part um, and I just felt hypnobirthing helped me feel much more in control because I felt like I had all these tools that I could use and while I wasn't going to be able to control necessarily how the birth unfolded I felt like I would be able to control myself every step of the way so I'd be able to control like how I reacted which tool I used um, and that just made me feel confident you know like I really finished the class feeling feeling confident and feeling curious about what was to come you know I was really looking forward to, to giving birth um, and yeah I had a really happily uneventful pregnancy um, I think I was around 37 weeks and my baby wasn't engaged uh, and I had a private obstetrician for the first one and he was like oh well you know if your baby's not engaged at 37 weeks they're probably not going to be engaged at 38 they're probably not going to be engaged at 39 probably not going to be engaged at 40 do you want to schedule your cesarean and I was like mm, no <laughs> and again I know Google can be a total double-edged sword but you know, returned to Google and found out that yes, you know, a baby not being engaged is not an automatic indication for a cesarean. 
so I went back to my hypnobirthing toolbox and, you know, did some acupuncture and did a little work myself to make sure that my body was ready and to try to encourage my baby to, to get engaged and to, you know, start that, that labor process. Um, and I had, you know, a really positive first birth and um, ended up having, having um, you know, a, a physiological vaginal birth. Um, and I guess I was sort of one of the first of my friends to have a baby. And I didn't really realize that my positive experience wasn't the norm until friends started having babies and they came out of their births not feeling that same, you know, proud, empowered feeling that, that, that I felt. And, um, when the, uh, opportunity came up to be a hypnobirthing practitioner, um, I think my son was about two at that point. I was like, yes, definitely. You know, I want more women to feel like I felt, you know, I want women to start motherhood feeling, you know, proud of themselves and feeling confident in their, in their bodies and, you know, trusting themselves and, you know, just starting on that high rather than starting from this low and having to, to rebuild at a time when you should really just be focusing on, you know, finding your feet as a family and, you know, falling in love with your baby and falling in love with your partner who's now a parent. And yeah, so I've been teaching hypnobirthing for seven, seven years now. Um, and I just love, I lo like, I'm so passionate about it. And I just love, it never feels like a job. It just feels like a, a privilege. Wow. That's very inspiring. Beautiful. And yeah, you're right. It's not the norm that, you know, a lot of women are coming, myself included, actually, I started um, my first, I had a home birth and then transfer and yeah, more and more you hear stories and it's good to hear all stories, but it's really great to hear yours and hear how that led you on to then be able to share those tools or that you found those tools, you were able, they benefited you and served you and you're able to share them. It's so fantastic. So then there's this idea of an empowered birth that you came out, that picture that you paint of what you experienced is really wonderful. You came out feeling confident, um, empowered. So for people, not everyone is going to go in and just have the flowing easy birth but do you believe that with those tools you can still come out feeling relatively empowered and i guess those tools then can serve you in the postpartum because as you might navigate any um really hard challenging emotions that come up from the birth you can then use those tools again and the postpartum which we'll get into so i'd love for you to hear for, to hear from you what you how you would class an empowered birth when you're talking to your clients that come to learn, what is an empowered birth and um, what does that look like for different people who have different birth outcomes? Yeah. I mean, it's exactly what, what you just said is I really like couples to try to think about what a positive birth is for them because it's really individual. You know, you really want to think about how you want to feel during that experience, how you want to feel after that experience, who do you want to be there with you? What role do you want them to play? Um, you know, usually when women describe their positive birth, it's not at all tied to the mechanics of birth. So they might say something like, oh, you know, I'd really like to have a water birth, but that's not their key. Their, the key sort of descriptors tend to be, you know, I want to feel supported. Um, I want to feel like I have a voice. I want to be involved in my care. You know, I want that informed decision-making process. Like they, they want to really own their birth rather than just 
you know, get put on sort of that conveyor belt of care um, that that the hospital provides and um, that those tend to be the key descriptors of, of a positive birth. And you can achieve that, you know, with a water birth, with an epidural, with a home birth, with a cesarean, like it's really not tied to any one um, and, you know, I find from doing birth debrief with clients, you know, I feel like hypnobirthing and the tools that it gives you and the, um, the way it empowers women to advocate for themselves and, and partners to, to, to advocate for the, for the birthing mother, um, that tends to be more valuable when nothing is going according to plan. Like when, you know, you have a birth that, yeah, it just unfolds and, you know, it does go exactly the way you were hoping, then you don't, you, you don't need any of those decision-making tools. You don't need to advocate for yourself because everything's, you know, it's, it's happening just, just as you planned it. But it tends to be, yeah, those more challenging births where you are having to make decisions and you are having to communicate with your caregivers and you are having to think really hard about what's best for you and what's best for your baby. That I think is when hypnobirthing and all the tools that it, you know, that comes with hypnobirthing becomes more, much more valuable. Um, yeah. And I, like I said, when I do birth debriefs with, with clients, you know, it, it is very clear that you can have like an overall positive experience, but still within that experience have to make hard decisions. Um, you know, it's, it's not, again, a positive experience isn't necessarily everything going according to plan. A positive experience is coming out of your birth again, feeling like you were, that you achieved all those positive birth descriptors, like you were involved in new care, you understood what was happening, you understood why you had to make these decisions, you know, you had the information available to make the best decisions for you, um, you know, and every step of the way you were in, you know, or you were as in control as, as you could be. Um, and, you know, like you said, those skills are so important when you become a parent you know the hard decisions and having to advocate for yourself doesn't end in birth um it, that's just 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 the beginning like being a parent is advocating for your child and asking questions and you know making sure that you're making the best decisions for for you as a, a family unit and i think you know learning to, to sort of flex those muscles during pregnancy and during birth is really helpful when you get to that, that next stage and, and you're having to, yeah, to, to advocate for your child. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it really does set you up. And it's so important to go in, educate and understand what those decisions are as you're making them, because you don't want to be making a decision about an epidural or some other um, aspect. And you've never really, you don't even really understand what that is. That's going to feel quite overwhelming and disempowering and understanding the cascade of interventions and when it might be okay to enter into that and when you feel like you might better buy a bit more time as well. Yeah. Important stuff. Yeah. And just, I would say like understanding that too, within each intervention, there's always options. You know, I think like the medical system tends to, um, it's sort of these black and white, you know, either you can have the epidural or, or, or you don't. And there's a lot of gray area in an epidural. Like you can have a lighter epidural, you can have a patient controlled epidural, you can have an epidural and then ask them to turn it down when you're pushing. Like there's all these options. And if you, you know, I know the saying is, if you don't know what the options are, you don't have any. And it's true. You know, if, if, if you don't know 
that you can even ask for those things and you'll just get the stock standard epidural. And that may be what's right for you, but maybe you wanted something else. Um, and so again, just to have the confidence that you are allowed to ask your caregivers those questions and you're allowed to voice your opinion and you're allowed to say okay I, you know I want an epidural or I think I need an epidural and this is what I want from it you know help help me get you know this this is what I'm hoping to, my expectations of the epidural are this you know and, and can you help help me achieve that um, and again the same is, is in postpartum like there's always options for for yourself and and your baby um, and and that transition and yeah I think sort of the sooner you realize that the easier everything is yeah absolutely I love that if you don't know what your options are then you don't really have any so it's about becoming informed and um, also I keep thinking that it's and you mentioned about being on the conveyor belt of birth just coming in and out and the medical system has its place there but it by um, way of its structure and its system and the way it has sort of evolved, it's taken away from the sacred rite of passage and huge life transition that motherhood is. And so innately all families know that. The mother goes in, the family goes in, they know this is like huge and they do all the planning and the prep and births like this pinnacle moment sort of, well, um, and it is, it's such a huge life changing event but then entering into the hospital system it's easy for that to all just kind of slip away and feel like you're just a part of this um medical system now it's a process you come in the baby will come out and then on your way <laughs> and so i feel like what you're offering and other birth workers are offering is to be able to hold that sacredness hold how special that is through the birth as well to not lose that when you enter into the birth, if that's in hospital um, and hold on to that. And by being empowered and being able to advocate for yourself and have other people there, that helps to hold that. Do you feel that as well? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the conveyor belt starts as soon as you get pregnant, you know, you're given your due date and then you're literally given the schedule. Okay. Based on your due date, which, you know, I could talk about, like I could talk for days on the, rubbish that is due date but anyway you're giving your due date and then they're like okay at this date you go for the scan at this date you have this appointment at this date you do your testing your you know gestational diabetes testing at this date you have this scan and you just you just go through your pregnancy and you don't have to think you know you don't actually have to think okay what does this experience mean for me and you know what do I want from this and you know what is the emotional transformation that you know, starts really as soon as you get pregnant. And, you know, it's just, like I said, you just are put onto this conveyor belt and that just progresses through your pregnancy. And I think that is part of the problem is there's no, there's no schedule for, okay, let's sit down and think about what, you know, what, what do you want from your birth? What are your thoughts about becoming a mother? You know, what are your thoughts about, parenting with your partner and you know that relationship and how is that going to work you know that that none of that emotional preparation is on the schedule um and so women don't do it they just tend to stick to the you know the schedule is very physical um and so they tend to focus their attention on that and you know the um sort of busy factors of you know prepare the nursery prepare the hospital bag 
Um, and again, we really miss, I think, that whole preparing ourselves emotional part of, of, of pregnancy and birth. And I think, like you said, intuitively, we know it's there, but we're kept so busy by this medical schedule and by, you know, the, the more physical preparation that we don't let ourselves go there. Um, and so I think, yeah, having women around you, and it doesn't have to be, you know, childbirth educators or, or a doula, it can just be other, you know, friends just speaking honestly about the massive transformation that is birth and, and becoming a mother and, you know, trying to find time within that, that busy schedule um, to, to honor that and, yeah, to, to prepare yourself for, for that big transformation as well. Yeah, it's so true. And we have so many resources now. So I think it's really important to, that's that village building, isn't it? To kind of rally in your friends and talk to mothers and, and um, mothers at all different stages too, because you get a different perspective. So someone that's sitting there breastfeeding, a little bubba's going to say something different to a mother whose kids are almost leaving home and everything in between and getting that idea of, um, yeah, the perspective of wisdom with age that comes sometimes of, or the time frame of being a mother less than age. Now, you said you could talk for days about due dates. Obviously, we don't have days, mm-hmm. but I am quite interested in this topic as well because in my first, I went to almost 42 weeks and it, I had a, um, I'd chosen a home birth midwife, um, so I had continuity of care. And, um, yeah, I'm definitely not going to go into my story, but it is a point that I'm quite interested in. So I'd love for you to share just a little bit to kind of pique people's interest and um, to introduce that concept or to expand the idea to think about it a little bit more. So we're told, you know, we, it's really brought back closer to that 38 weeks more and more, isn't it? Even though 40, um, even though a lot of people weren't tracking their cycle to start with. So the due date based on the period is that can be out by weeks, um, depending on when someone ovulated, which is, I used to share a lot. And I should start more about encouraging people to track their ovulation because that's going to be much more accurate and that's going to give you peace of mind when you're getting closer to your due date. <laughs> so yeah, I'd love for you to share a little bit, whatever you feel. Yeah, well, first I will direct people to Dr. Sarah Wickham. She's a midwife researcher out of the UK, and she has done a huge amount on due dates and gestation lengths and induction. So put that 100% um, in the show notes. Um, Yeah, so like you said, with modern due dates, we put it at 280 days, even though we know that normal gestation is more like 283 to 288. So we're selling women short from the very beginning. Um, And we also know that the variation in normal gestation is 37 days. So anywhere from 38 to 42 weeks is normal. So once you're 40 plus one, you're not overdue, you're still just pregnant. Once you're 41 weeks, you're not overdue, you're still just pregnant. Once you're 42 plus one, then you're overdue. But that's not how we think about it. That's not what our caregivers tell us. Like we have this all powerful due date. And like I said, all that whole antenatal care schedule is based off that one due date. It's impossible to escape. Um, And, you know, the fact that, you know, most women get two due dates. So you get one based on your cycle, which they never ask 
you know, was this a normal cycle for you? Like, where in your cycle do you think you can see? Like, they never asked those questions. Um, and they have one, one due date based on your cycle and one due date based on the scan. Um, and again, we know scans are sort of notoriously off when it comes to measurements and those due dates can be like differ by up to a week which I just think goes to show you that sort of the validity behind both of them is flawed you know if they were both a good measurement then you'd get the same date but anyway um but yeah and gestations have there's like a lot of I guess my whole thing with with pregnancy and birth and postpartum is it's individual and gestation lengths have huge individual variation so you know like you said you're a 42 weeker like you know, that means your mom probably had longer gestations or your sister had longer gestations or your daughter will have longer gestations. So, you know, taller women tend to have longer gestations. Women of different ethnicities have different gestations. So it's a very individual part of, of pregnancy. And we're not, you know, again, the medical model has reduced us to these machines. You know, we all need to give birth at exactly 40 weeks and our you know, the first stage of our labor needs to be exactly this long and we only can push for two hours and then we need to give birth to this perfect eight pound baby. And that's not how our bodies work. You know, we're, again, we're individuals and there's so many different factors that go into every aspect of, of pregnancy and birth, including gestation. Um, and we just don't, again, the medical model just doesn't allow for that, that flexibility. Um, so, you know, sort of like you said, just encouraging women to sort of, you know, think critically about themselves as an individual and, yeah, have that awareness of when they thought they fell pregnant and then having that awareness that their baby will likely come, you know, 283 to 288 days after that, but normal variation is 37 days. So, yeah, just having flexibility around the due date. And, yeah, like you said, it's, it's, gestation is creeping it, it's becoming like 38 weeks and there's interventions being suggested and you know we're just really a lot happens in those last few weeks of pregnancy um, both for mother and and for baby and to sort of rob mother and baby of that time has major implications um, you know in in postpartum but also for for longer term health hey there i'm julia I'm interrupting this podcast to let you know that if you are really enjoying this podcast, you'll probably really enjoy newborn mothers too. We provide online courses for professionals and mothers worldwide who believe birth is about making mums too. You'll find all the links in the show notes. Enjoy the rest of the show. Yeah, absolutely. And I, it makes me think again of what you said, knowing your options gives you options and with my second I um I went with a private obstetrician because of my first experience and she did originally she was very supportive of me having a natural physiological birth and I felt good about that but we got she didn't feel comfortable about me going over um 40 weeks because of what happened and there was even talk early on of 38 and I said, oh, I'd like to push it closer to 30, 40. And she, um, you know, we had this back and forth. And she's like, mm, 39. Anyway, we got there and I said, look, can we just do weekly or whatever you feel comfortable with? Can we check in? I have an appointment. And we just do a scan and have a look. People have different ideas about scans. But that was how, what I felt would be the best way 
for for me to feel comfortable too and for her my care provider and we just kept negotiating and I pushed it to 41 and everything was fine <laughs> I didn't necessarily turn exactly how I wanted but everything was fine um from my perspective and from their perspective so you're yeah, not having that negotiation as well I was able to buy a bit more time because for me personally I felt like I wanted to give my baby a little bit more brain growing time um lung development time and I didn't want to push it I wanted to optimize the physiological birth option and I think that's yeah that's key too if that's someone's goal um, I'll definitely pop Dr. Sarah Wickham in the notes. I, when I talk to my nan, and I'm definitely not romanticising days gone by with birth and birth outcomes, but when I talk to my nan, I think there's something in what she says with that. They didn't have scans. Their due date really was such an estimate. There wasn't so, so much pressure. So psychologically, they weren't thinking so much about the birth and the other side of that is she says they went in so naive because people didn't really talk about birth much and they had no idea what was going on and it was twilight births and all sorts of crazy stuff going on. But the pregnancy, in a sense, was quite naive and blissful. <laughs> now, if we could find a balance with that of not over-worrying about all the little details and knowing that, you know, back in the day, going a bit over didn't necessarily mean negative outcomes there's other factors there's compounding factors that need to be addressed and um the overthinking maybe is a part of what is not allowing i know for myself allowing women to really get into that space and allow all the hormones to come in to have the type of physiological birth a lot of people aim for yeah i mean that stress at the end of pregnancy is not helpful in terms of getting labor started um and yeah I, I mean that's what a lot of women are up against is you know the induction conversation starting certainly 40 weeks and depending on you know various factors might be starting 38 weeks um and then that whole end of the pregnancy can be characterized by you know sort of stress and dread and questioning yourself and overthinking and exactly what you said that that all those stress hormones prevent your labor hormones from, from kicking in. So it almost becomes this like, you know, self-fulfilling prophecy. Your caregiver is telling you you need an induction and you're getting really stressed by that idea of the induction and by these hard conversations. And then that prevents your natural labor hormones from, from kicking in. So you don't engage in that, that nice early labor process. And then you need an induction, but maybe you wouldn't have needed an induction if you didn't have all the yeah that, that stress and you did have a more sort of blissful um end to your pregnancy yeah absolutely so you had quite a beautiful empowering birth and then baby came into your world with your family and postpartum hit <laughs> how was that and how has that influenced you then to go on and become a postpartum doula um, I guess I was really naive about becoming a mother. You know, I focused a lot on the birth. I actually put a lot of effort into learning about breastfeeding as well, because that was also important to me. And I did have some vague idea that it wasn't always easy. Um, so did a lot of, you know, just watching videos on YouTube and um, just sort of self-education about breastfeeding. Um, but yeah, I sort of imagined me 
you know, living my best life just with a baby in tow, <laughs> like, you know, out doing all the things I love doing just with this cute little sleeping bundle of joy. Um, and it was not like that. Um, I, uh, not that there's good babies or bad babies, but my first was not a sleeper. Um, he catnapped, he wanted to feed all the time. Um, and, you know, since learning a lot more about this, I've, I've been able to reframe it, but that's how it felt to me. Like it felt to me at the time that this baby wouldn't sleep. You know, he just wanted to feed all the time. I spent so much effort trying to figure him out and trying to, you know, I was using apps to track sleep and nappies and feeding and trying to look for patterns and trying to like, I don't know, um, just yeah, figure it out and be able to anticipate and plan. And, you know, I just wanted to know really when I was going to sleep again. Um, and that all came as, as a shock to me. Um, and I really, like, there wasn't anything wrong. Like, it was a very normal sleeping, very normal feeding pattern. There was nothing I didn't, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it was a very easy postpartum. Um, it, I just didn't feel that way to me because I wasn't really uh, prepared. So I could have just done a lot with some normalization um, and just someone reassuring me that this, this was normal. There was nothing wrong with me. There was nothing wrong with my baby. You know, I really just needed to, to you know, for lack of a better term, to sort of lean into this and just let my baby lead and, you know, just follow and not try to force anything on us. Um, for those first three to, to six weeks. And, you know, I did eventually learn that, that lesson and everything, everything became much easier when, when I did. Um, and I definitely, the second time I approached postpartum very differently and just sort of planned to, to do nothing but lie on the couch and, and feed my baby for, for a few weeks. Um, and that was you know, beautiful and, and easier still, um, because I, I wasn't putting any expectations on myself. Yeah, that's great that you're able to take that. And a lot of it is about that surrender. I mean, motherhood in general is so largely about surrender. I often say it's really about, um, accepting what is and yeah, working out. I, I can relate to the first postpartum similar to what you how you felt um constantly questioning you know like, is this right should I be feeding this much do babies really need to be held the whole time oh I'm so tired I don't know just keep going and and over and over it went day after day I was quite lucky because we lived with my parent uh, my partner's parents at the time so I did have a lot of extra support and I was aware of how lucky I was with that um so did you there's that aspect of just like leaning into it and surrendering, but there's also an aspect of support. And was that an element for you? And how did that change with your second as far as setting up or was it more about preparation? Um, yeah, I tend to be very independent. So I suppose with the first, I wouldn't, learning to ask for help was another big um, life motherhood lesson for me. Um, and it's one I still struggle with. Um, and yeah, so the first time I was totally unprepared for, I, I didn't even know what I needed, you know, I, and I, when you're in that state of sort of sleep deprivation, it's really hard to know 
what you want um, or what you need. And, you know, my partner was being a fantastic partner and he was getting up for all the night feeds and changing the nappies and he was exhausted and I was exhausted and neither of us knew what we needed as an individual or what we needed as a couple, let alone even understanding that we could ask for help. Um, the second time it just, my husband's a teacher and it just, the pregnancy coincided with the Christmas holidays. Um, so he was home for six weeks. So between him being home for six weeks and I had a, a home birth with a private midwife the second time. So I had also the six weeks of, um, you know, in-home postpartum support from my midwife. Um, I felt that that was all that I, I needed. Um, but I suppose I did go into it the second time. I, I mean, your eyes are, are wide open the second time, you know, you know, what, 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 what's ahead, what's to come. Um, and I think it was more, more preparation for me, I suppose. And just having a plan with my partner, like he moved into the guest room for the first few weeks. So he was the one getting the sleep. So he was the one, you know, making those family decisions which can be minor you know I remember the first time fighting about what to have for dinner because we were both so tired like we uh, I'd be like what do you want for dinner he's like I don't I don't know like I can't you I don't care you decide and I'd be like I, I don't know I don't care you decide and then we'd like be fighting about what to have for dinner when like all we had was wheat fix anyway you know so the, the second time I was like all right you're going to be the rational adult you're going to be the rational parent. I'm going to just try to stay in my blissful baby bubble for, for as long as I can. So you're doing all the, all the admin. Um, yeah. So I, I think for me, it was more, more planning than actual support. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I like there was a conversation about the roles and what would that would be to allow you to really go into that. And then that, sort of empowers the partner as well to be able to go, okay, this is my role. I'm clear. There's no use us both going into complete like sleep deprivation, depending on the the baby and the level of support network. Um, and you, your family is overseas. So that would have, yeah, was not so much an option element of support as well. And then you went on to study to become a postpartum doula with newborn mothers, as I did. You did a few years before me. How was that doing that post your postpartum, which I did too? <laughs> I actually studied um, newborn mothers with my second in my arms, still at my breast. <laughs> same, yeah. No, I, I was the same. Out of my postpartum, out of my early um, yeah. trimester postpartum, just going. Oh, because with my second was actually harder. People think this is strange. I should have known, but I was, we were living alone. We'd bought our own home because we'd lived with my partner's parents and saved up and had a toddler in tow. And I, um, I just didn't think much about it because I guess I'd been a bit blissfully um, supported and I had quite an easy postpartum, even though there was challenges psychologically and emotionally with the adjustments, the physical day-to-day -day stuff. And so, uh, yeah, I did get a bit of a shock with my second. Um, what was I asking? <laughs> I didn't get much sleep, as I told you last night. Oh, yeah, newborn <laughs> mothers, sorry, post-studying um, yeah. newborn mothers. Yeah, I mean, I think it sort of validated everything that I had done the second time. So I understood more how I could have made the first time better 
Um, and then, yeah, it definitely validated the choices I made the second time. Um, and I think for me, it helped me really see the links between birth and postpartum um, and how when all of those hormones that all the, you know, if you go through that whole physiological process of birth, how that really helps in, in postpartum and, you know, particularly oxytocin, um, which you're producing in, in huge amounts in birth, how that helps you have that really, that really blissful um, postpartum. And it does, it helps you connect with your, with your baby and, and your partner and, you know, your, your greater family and, and community. Um, you know, it helps with breastfeeding. Um, I, I found those connections really, really fascinating. Um, yeah, and, and yeah, the whole thing just sort of both my experiences made a lot more sense after doing the course to be becoming a, a postpartum dual. And again, I guess I sort of tend the the part of Julia's course that I really loved was the, the, the science and the hormones and, you know, what's sort of going on behind the scenes. And, you know, that's what I really love about birth. And I, I just found that, yeah, that was a major light bulb moment to be like, oh, it's the same in postpartum, you know, you, you really need to keep the stress down, keep your environment calm. Um, you, you know, that just like that benefits you in birth, that benefits you in, in postpartum um, as well. And I think, like I said, the second time having done that, I could see the benefits of it. You know, I could see the benefits of, of doing very little except feed your baby, you know, nourishing yourself um, and yeah, really doing, putting the focus on things that 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 bring you joy rather than you know like vacuuming the floors <laughs> like I just remember the first time like just you know putting so much pre and part of it is social media I think and Pinterest and we see these new mothers doing it all and having it all and we think oh we can too um and you know when I look back on my first experience like what my expectations were of of myself and my baby and my partner it was insane. Um, and so I just think the second time, you know, like you said, really learning to let go of, you know, expectations and control and really just spend those first six weeks um, focused on myself and, and my baby and not see that as selfish, see that as something that is, is important. Um, that, yeah, like I, like I said, I think doing the course, yeah, really helped me understand both of my postpartum experiences. Mm, yeah, I really love that aspect of newborn mothers of understanding the brain changes and that reframe of it being an upgrade and how to optimize um, to have a po positive experience with oxytocin and what that means, the rest, the nourishment, uh, the support, that sort of thing. And you're right, you know, like whether you vacuum whatever time period, you know, like the, the dust, let the dust build up a bit. If you're going to pull the vacuum yeah. out, just let it build up a bit. Make them get bang for your buck for that vacuum. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah it's, it's interesting. And we, it, it's amazing now when I speak to women who are pregnant for the first time and I try to explain, make sure you also plan for the postpartum and, and they do what I did. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then they get on the other side and I'll get a message or something go, oh, right. I should have listened a bit more. Now I understand what you're saying. I'm like, that's okay. Me too. <laughs> oh, yeah, and I think it's a really hard thing. Like, 
you know, new or mothers will be like, why did no one tell me? And I'm kind of like, well, we tried, <laughs> you know, and I, and I was like that as well. You're like naive and you think, oh, you know, like I'm, you know, an independent, high functioning woman, you know, I'm, I'm going to be able to do this. And it's that fine line. And it's the same is true of birth. It's that fine line of other women. You know, you don't want to scare pregnant women. You know, you, you, you don't want to paint this like horrible picture of what's to come because having a baby is meant to be exciting and, and enjoyable, but then you also do want to, um, I don't, maybe not warn them, but help them see that, that preparation is, is valuable. Um, yeah. And it, yeah, it's sort of that fine line between not, you know, not pulling back the curtain enough so that they think, Oh yeah, I'll be fine. And then, you know, kind of pulling it back too much and, and, and feeling, um, you know, some, some fear. Yeah, yeah, it is a fine balance. And a lot of these topics are birth, breastfeeding, postpartum. And I guess also when you see that it was a cultural norm um, across so many cultures, almost every culture, then that gives it um, a bit more validity. You know, it's not just an individual personal experience. This was something that our ancestors worked out over thousands of years. And there's, you know, a reason for it. What that looks like in the modern day is going to be different for everyone. But understanding that reculturation and I think there's been lots of conversations that have gone on um newborn mothers at least earlier on when I was on there a bit um about how it's just going to be a very slow process this reculturation of how important postpartum is and birth has had a bit of a renaissance and a bit of a wave and there's still a long way to go and I feel like postpartum is finding its feet in the last couple of years as well and it's just going to be a slow sort of reculturation it got we let go of it all for a while, the postpartum culture, and that was maybe to reframe it for a, a changing modern, modern inverted commas, like a changing world. But um, what did we throw out? What baby did we throw out with the bathwater that maybe we should bring back in and keep? And what does that look like? Having choice, not having it imposed upon you by this really rigid culture from your mum's and aunties, and you can kind of choose and and yeah, create your own, which is great. Um, I'm aware of the time, but I would love to, I realised I didn't touch, I really want to talk about birth and COVID, but I might save that to last and just touch quickly on your passion for postpartum food and nourishment. I saw that you're offering um, postpartum food now. And I think that's a really beautiful thing. And I'm also passionate about the food aspect. And I feel like for me, everyone can relate to food. You know, we all enjoy going out to eat food. We all eat food. Some people are foodies, some people aren't. We all get that very practical aspect that we need to eat <laughs> and even more so. Um, and we know about pregnancy um, nourishment and take our, post our antenatal vitamin. And then sometimes that kind of gets forgotten about. The vitamin gets starts collecting dust and we're just like, I was snacking on peanut butter toast with one hand while feeding and that sort of thing. But uh, what led you to having a bit of a focus on postpartum food. Yeah, well, actually, because of COVID, I'm not doing the, the food delivery anymore. Um, just the, the kitchen that I was cooking out, I've had to do a big COVID pivot. Um, but yeah, I found when I was doing the one-on-one, -on -one, um, uh, you know, in-home postpartum support, what I loved the most was leaving the mom with a fridge full of food. And just knowing that for the next week, she was going to be 
well nourished and she just wouldn't have to worry about food. And, you know, like you said, I think food can be, you know, even if you don't love food, we, yeah, we do all have to eat. Um, And I think we all know the difference between, you know, food that is just nourishment um, you know, and that we're eating just because we need to get the, the nutrients and we need some calories um, and food that is comforting and, you know, uh, you know, sort of full of love and that when we eat it, we actually feel good emotionally as well. Um, and so I just, yeah, when I was doing, like I said, the, the one-on-one in-home support, I would way overcook. Um, and I just like loved it. Like I just loved you know, it'd be a few days after a visit and I would just sort of like imagine the mom like, you know, putting her baby down for a little sleep and wanting to go have a snack and opening the fridge and being like, oh, you know, look at all this beautiful food that I have and, you know, just sitting and and feeling loved and feeling supported through food. So even when I wasn't there, you know, she was still feeling feeling that that support and and that care. Um, so yeah, so that's why I love postpartum food and, you know, again, the science with it is really interesting as well. Um, you know, looking at, at postpartum depletion and, you know, how much having a baby takes from us, um, and how we can really use postpartum as a time to, you know, nurture ourselves and really replenish everything that was lost, um, during pregnancy birth and, um, you know, everything that we're putting into to breastfeeding. Yeah, because people often don't realise that your nutritional needs in some areas go up when you're breastfeeding more than when you're pregnant. I've gone on to do some great study with um, Lily Nichols through the Women's Nutrition Health Academy. I think there's two, her and a friend, they've got some lovely short courses in Canada, um, based in Canada, but you can do it online. Anyone can do it online. And yeah, looking at what that is, we don't really have a lot of our nutritional standards have been based on men. Like, you know, we cover in newborn mothers, a lot of science has been based on that and just adjusted a little bit for women <laughs> rather than being uniquely specific. So yeah, nutrition similar and um, we've underestimated our nutritional needs, which makes sense to why so many, including myself, have experienced postpartum depletion. And that can manifest in so many ways and years later. So it's so nice to know that, yeah, there's ways to prevent that, even if it's just a little bit or wholly. Um, And I think it's a nice way to build the village and to empower other people to nurture a new mum as well, to go, well, what's your favourite dish or what's their favourite dish? Even if it's, you know, a spaghetti bog or a lasagna or whatever it is, something, cook it, take it around. There you go. That's the gateway of supporting that mum. While you're there, hang out with some washing or just drop it at the front door, you know. That's a great yeah. way to um, empower others to support mums as well. So before we wrap up, um, yeah, you meant, touched on it, but birth and COVID, postpartum and COVID, it's a new sort of territory that a lot of people are navigating. And we touched a little bit in the pre-chat on there's a lot of aspects to that. There's the um, actual day-to-day, what's that going to look like in the hospital as things kind of tighten in on restrictions or expand out, not knowing, the unknowing, and how that impacts emotionally but also uh, practically around having doulas and things like that. I'd love to just hear a little bit about your perceptions of what that looks like and as people might be 
listening to this pregnant or know someone pregnant, um, yeah, how they can just be a little bit more prepared. Yeah, I mean, I think it's exactly what you said. It's just that uncertainty of not knowing, you know, what stage the hospital may be in when you go into labor and, you know, if your parents live further away and you're counting on them for support, you know, are they going to be able to to get to you? Um, yeah, so I, again, my uh, sort of go-to for all things tends to be, you know, knowledge and and preparation. So just, you know, I think during COVID, it's even more important to prepare. And again, we were, we were talking about this before we started recording, but also it becomes really, really impart, important for your partner to get prepared as well. So, you know, your partner may be the only one with you in hospital, may be the only one with you in postpartum. So really getting them on board with, again, what your vision of a positive birth, what your vision of a po- positive postpartum, what, what that looks like, um, and really getting clear on what their role is going to be and what you're going to need from them, you know, at, at different stages along the way. Um, and then, you know, like you said, getting getting friends, really building your your very close village, you know, people who, who will be able to to get to you and to support you no matter what and doing a meal train. Um, you know, I, I do think food is, is huge. Um, so putting together a meal train, there's lots of different apps and websites that, that people can use. Um, another one that can be really good in COVID is the peanut app, um, which is, this is more postpartum. It's like Tinder for parents. Um, so again, depending on what restrictions are, but just because so many in-person mothers groups have been shut down and um, the peanut app, if it's, if it's safe in your area to meet another mom and go for a walk or something like that, you can put in, in the peanut app, like, you know, I live here, my baby's this many weeks old, I'm really wanting to get out of the house and, and go for a walk. So I'm looking for another mom who wants to do the same. And again, you can match on, on peanut. So I think it's, like I said, just being prepared and understanding that you might have to take more control of your experience than you were planning on. So again, if you were planning on you're going to the hospital and having a doula and joining your local community health center for the mother mother's group. And then the doula gets taken away and the mother's groups get taken away, you know, just having some ideas for um, other supports that can fill those, those voids. Um, Yeah. And I think a lot of that will be your partner and a lot of that will be you asking for help and yeah, seeking out those, those other safe options. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, I love that, the peanut app. I'm going to look into it. I love that idea because even if you do have friends around, they might not be at the same stage as you. They might be working and, or, you know, taking their kids to school and not in that, just sometimes having that other mum who's at a similar stage to you to go, oh, yeah, nipples are sore, oh, didn't sleep last night, whatever it is, and yeah. um, to bounce those things off. I was reading something recently about, it was from a lactation consultant about how um, so many with that, I think she must've been in the States and without the mother's groups, how many more calls are coming through to troubleshoot things that normally would have been sorted in the social mother groups because they were the types of things that would just come out in a conversation and be like, oh, I'm experiencing this. And then someone else would go, me too. And then another mum might come in and go, oh, I went through that with my last one. I'm on my second, you know, and it's okay. Do this, do that. And 
it's a fairly minor thing, so it's sorted out just through that social interaction that's not when you're a bit more isolated. So I love that idea of, um, yeah, having alternate ways to socialise and, and having accessing online but not just relying on the online. Yeah, I think, I mean, there is something about in-person communication. You know, I know a lot of mothers groups have, have gone online um, and, you know, there's definitely a place for that. Um, and, you know, I'm teaching hypnobirthing online, but I do think, yeah, you sort of miss, there is something about being one-on-one -on -one with someone that you just can't, you can't quite replicate um, in, in Zoom. Um, and yeah, like I said, I think the Zoom mothers groups are, are great and they definitely serve a role. But yeah, even if it's just one-on-one -on, -one on the phone, you know, with someone, I feel like even that has a different energy than in, in front of your, your screen. Um, yeah. And, and, but there are some, like, there are some positives to COVID too. You know, there've been the rate of preterm births has gone way down. Um, breastfeeding rates have gone way up. So I do think there are some sort of lessons to be learned about yeah, slowing down, isolating a little bit in that in that postpartum time, figuring out how to breastfeed before you sort of re-enter the world. Um, yeah, so I think there's with everything there's positives and, and negatives. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned the positives. That those um, yeah, it's quite interesting observation that that slowing down. And people have noticed it with kids as well. I noticed it with my kids, um, which led me to homeschooling. Well, I don't know if that will be forever, but there was just a sort of a peace with not having such a busy schedule. <laughs> and it was nice when it opened up a bit more, which it has. But, um, yeah, so interesting about the breastfeeding rates and preterm. A lot to be learned from that about our busy world and how that impacts certain outcomes and what's actually needed in that time, it's sort of a good reinforcement that we need slowing down. We don't need so many inputs from the outside, kind of creating a cozy nest. So we, before we wrap up, would you recommend people still get a doula in this time, not knowing, um, given the benefits of that continued continuity of care and, and nurturing on an emotional level? And it, oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. 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 I mean, there, we know that, I mean, Continuity of midwifery care is the gold standard for women in birth, pregnancy. Um, unfortunately, I forget what the statistic is. I think it's like less than 8% of Australian women have those options locally available. Um, so I definitely think that, you know, the next best thing um, is having a doula and having that, um, you know, it's not, not just emotional support, but physical support throughout pregnancy and labor and, you know, different doulas obviously have different packages, but getting one that includes that, that postpartum care is, you know, I don't think anyone who's had postpartum support from a doula or from a midwife would say I didn't need it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's amazing. Like just having someone come to your house, bring you food, normalize what you're experiencing and then helping you overcome any obstacles is, is just, you know, in, invaluable. Um, and, uh, you know, I guess it depends where you are, but at least in Brisbane, even when the hospitals went down to one visitor, um, most women could, like I say, apply for an exemption to get their doula um, to come with them. Um, so it wasn't, 
or at least most recently, it, it hasn't been an issue in terms of, of COVID and, and restrictions. Um, but even still doulas, again, everyone did COVID, COVID pivots and doulas were doing amazing, you know, zooming into the, to the birth suites and, you know, providing support to the partner over the phone. Um, you know, it's just, it's another person on your birth team. And again, the fit the fit has to be right. Um, but if you can find someone that you're really comfortable with and that, that you trust and that your partner feels comfortable with as well, it's it, like I said, it's, it's, I, I don't think anyone ever regrets um, hiring a doula. Yeah. Yeah. It's so true. And anyone who has hired a doula or even had um, quite a good connection with a midwife, whether that was continuing care knows how, special that person becomes in your memory and your heart so yeah I agree I think there's still a place but even if things change and you can't take the doula in um, still having that support like you said on the phone and before and after leading right up to yeah fantastic well thank you so much Caitlin I feel like we've covered a lot and we could have gone off on any of those on yeah. <laughs> yeah, a, a really holistic sort of picture so I'd love for you to share with people um, where you can be found, your website, your services, social media, that sort of thing. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. Um, yeah, I'm Mother Down Under pretty much everywhere. So Instagram, Facebook, and then my website is motherdownunder.com. Um, yeah, I'm based out of Brisbane, but I'm doing a lot over Zoom um, at the moment. Great. So you're doing your hypnobirthing. and Yeah, fantastic. I'll pop all of that in the show notes. So thank you. Have a lovely day. And um, yeah, you too. Excited to get this one out there in the world. Thanks, Caitlin. So yeah, thank I you. So clearly, will I wake you up in the morning so early just to tell you? wanted to jump on and say thanks to everyone who has been supporting and sharing and following so far. When I first started the podcast almost two years ago I had no idea where it would lead and I have to say that I have just loved the opportunity to chat to interesting people and to contribute to the world of podcasts out there which was initially my inspiration as a mother I find podcasts so valuable to be able to tune into interesting adult conversations in the everyday world while you're driving, doing the dishes, whatever that may be. So I would love for you to share any episodes. Go back. We've got 30-something episodes now. I've got some exciting news coming soon. Um, so, yeah, I'd love for you also to go and sign up to my email list over at pollinationmamas.com jump on Instagram and Facebook at Pollination Mamas and let me know what your favourite episodes have been and any topics that you might like to hear in the future. Thank you so much.